This is Football CFB, the home of unique football content. I never told you You scared off the vultures I never told you You scared off the ghosts living in my head That lay lonely in the dirt That Delighted to be joined on Football CFB this evening by Robbie Stockdale, a man who has played down in England, played in the Premier League at Middlesbrough, worked with some really top players and coaches and then went on to become a coach in his own right as well. He's, he's coached at Sunderland and he's coached up here in Scotland at Hibernian as well. First of all, Robbie, thanks for joining me. Oh, no problem. Pleasure. The, the first question I want to ask you, um, I believe you are a boyhood Middlesbrough fan, so... What was it like coming through the system and, and getting to play for your boyhood club? Yeah, I was. That, that's right. I mean, um, I was I was sort of born and brought up in the Middlesbrough area in a place called Mask and then Redcar. And um, as, as far back as I can remember being a little kid, I was a Middlesbrough fan going to Ayrson Park, which was obviously the stadium before what they're in now. Um, and watching... People like Tony Mowbray, Bernie Slaven, Stuart Ripley, you know, all these players that I'm sure you've never heard of. But to me, they were, they were heroes growing up, you know. And um, so the, my earliest memories of sort of the association with Borough was probably about seven or eight years old, um, being part of their school of excellence. Um, and it was a little bit different to what kids go through now, you know. It was training maybe once or twice a week. And then playing for the School of Excellence on a on a Sunday usually or Saturday morning, but still being able to play for your club team and your district team and it's completely different now in England. You know, boys are part of an academy. That's it. They're locked into that club. They train pretty much on a daily basis from under nines, um, and they don't get that experience of playing with the mates in the, in the schools and the districts and on a Sunday morning. So. Um, but no, I was a, a, a huge Borough fan. Um, went to every game. And then, on the back of that, um, managed to sign school. My father's at 14. Um, and progressed through, through the ranks all the way through, which is, you know, was a dream come true. When was the, the first time that you thought you had a real chance of making it as a professional? Because we all know the stories of guys we were in school with, and we all dream of being a professional, but only quite a few can make it. Yeah, um, without being big-headed, I, I always knew I was a good player at youth level. You know, but by the time I was sort of 14, 15, I was playing in Middlesbrough's youth team, which was under-18s. So I was always playing above age groups, if you like. Um, and then, bizarrely, my first year as a YTS, so in, in those days you signed a two-year YTS, from 16, so you leave school, you're going to be a YTS, and you do all the jobs that people talk, but people don't do it now, and and what have you. And my first year, I really struggled. Um, I actually went into that pre-season ill. I had glandular fever, and I think the impact of training every day and standing on your own two feet and getting the bus at seven o'clock in the morning to make sure you get training on time. I think it took its toll. So that was the first time I had doubts that whether I could make it. Um, but thankfully, I got through that, 
and my second year sort of progressed and, and, and sort of got back to the, uh, not the level, but sort of the journey that I knew I was predicted to be on and made me debut as a YTS in that second year. But um, yeah, I always, I always thought that it might happen. You hope it might happen, but the, you know, I did, I did work hard. I did work hard at making it to, to, the, to the level that I got. What was it like also, you, you mentioned the fact that you, you were determined to make it, you, you believed in yourself and subsequently do make it, but you were at Middlesbrough at a time when Brian Robson was the manager. I imagine as a young player, yeah. that, was, that was quite a thing considering his stature within football. Well, it was a massive change at the club. So if you go back to when I was sort of teenage years, um, it was people like, the manager that signed me when I was 14 was a guy called Lenny Lawrence. I remember signing on the pitch as a 14-year-old with mum and dad and youth development officer called Ron Bourne. Um, and I, I remember it really clearly. It was um, Essen Park and it was about five and a half thousand people and we were playing Portsmouth. And there was a guy, we actually lost the game and there was a guy called Jerry Craney. He scored a couple of goals for Portsmouth. I think he played up at Celtic at some point. Um, so that was, you know, I wasn't joining the club because it was Brian Robson. Brian came when I was maybe 15, 16, and the club completely changed. It was a, a massive shift. You know, we suddenly bought a player, uh, Neil Cox, for a million quid, and Brian was playing manager, and we got promoted. But that was like a, a huge difference to the club that I signed for at 14. Um, and that brings its own sort of worries. You know, I, one of the reasons... Not only was I a fan, but I also had quite a, a clear mind that I thought if I signed for Middlesbrough, I'd get a chance in the first team quicker than some of the other clubs that were, were after me. And then Brian comes along and Steve gives him, somebody gives him a million pound for a right back and they bought Nigel Pearson for half a million pound at centre back. And the whole dynamic of the club changed and we move into a new stadium. So it was, it was a brilliant journey to be on. Um, but again... What I signed for as a kid had changed two years after. And you mentioned the change going to the new stadium and, and some of the players that come in. I mean, Paul Merson, Paul Gascoigne, just what's it like when, when guys of that stature at international level, they've, they've won big honours, they're, they're famous in their own right outside of football as well. What's it like when they come into a football club? It's unbelievable. Like I say, I think at that time, Middlesbrough were buying like world-class players. You know, the, you know, I, I think of the, the team that I made my debut in, and it was people like Paul Lintz in midfield, like you just said, Paul Merson. Um, Janinho was around that time. You know, the Brazilian player of the year signed for Middlesbrough. You know, it just don't, it doesn't happen anymore, does it? Um, and when I was at YTS at 16, 17, we signed Ravinelli. And then before you know it, two years later, I'm in the team playing with Valen Boxic. So these names, it's just it's like it's, it's like unreal to think that these players could come and play for a, what is essentially a. I think listen, it's it's a smallish club in comparison to the other other clubs in the Premier League at the time. So we're just a, a town, you know. But um, for those players to come and sort of apply the trade on T side was was. Unbelievable, really. I don't think it'll happen ever again. You know, I've got to be honest. I think that was a, a golden era of of players coming in with that stature. And then it changed a little bit when Steve McLaren came in and we went a little bit more um, 
sort of went away from the big foreign signings like that, but we bought people like Gareth Southgate, Ugo Egio, you know, top, top class players, international players. And unfortunately at the moment, Middlesbrough is a, a long way from doing that again. And in terms of those big names, when they come into the club, fans are excited because they're wearing the club jersey, they see, see them on a Saturday or a Sunday, but what are they like in training? I mean, you mentioned Janino, for instance, who I know he didn't perform particularly great when he was up here in Scotland with Celtic, but when you look at him through the Premier League, he's an icon of the Premier League era, an absolute top-class yeah. player. Yeah, so the first time Juni came, um, like I say, he just scored a goal against England at Wembley, and um, it's a free kick for, for Brazil. And we signed him, and he, I've got to say, he was unbelievable as a player, as a person. Is uh, he came over with all his family, and he fitted in great. And he was one of these people that would train every day and be on, a, be the first person on the training pitch, be the last person off it. But he actually, like like a lot of the Brazilians, to be honest, we had Emerson as well at the time. They sort of emerged themselves into our our culture, if you like. Who were, were well up for. Um, sort of being part of the team. There was other players like Ravinelli. So Rav was very out, very much out for himself. Um, you know, he, he was quite insular. Uh, he wouldn't mix with the group very well. Um, but on a Saturday, he'd score a goal. So he sort of put up with it. Um, so, yeah, so the, a lot of those big players had their own... Um, people around them and some of them emerged into our squad really well and some of them were a little bit more uh, sort of insular in what, in what they wanted to do. And in terms of the Premier League, just describe what it's like when you're playing in the Premier League because even back then it's still the elite level of football. Um, for, for many people, you, you think of the players that came into the Premier League in the late 90s, early 2000s to, to really take on the Wenger effect and so on. What was it like playing week in, yeah. week out at that level? Yeah, so the first sort of like the first time I broke through was what you say under Brian Robson. And we had a really sort of um team of experienced players. So as a young player coming into that, you felt almost looked after as you as you played the game, you know, it was people like Nigel Pearson and uh, Steve Vickers, Robbie Musto, and Brian got together a group of very experienced, been there, done it kind of kind of players. And the young players were, um, for one of the sort of sort of looked after on the pitch. You know, you could play the game, but Nigel was next to you talking to you constantly. With Steve, it was a little bit different. He wanted to change the the dynamics of the squad a little bit, and we brought younger players through and. Um, you know, we, we signed a couple of players from Man United, John Green and Mark Wilson, and but they were young players finding their own way. And we were then a group evolving together, so we had to help each other out. Um, but to be honest, I never thought that the step up to play in Premier League was was that difficult. I know that sounds really daft, and you're up against... Um, world-class players, international players, week in, week out. But you were playing with them as well. And that made the game a little bit easier for, for you. So when, when you had the ball in the Premier League, you, you tended to have a little bit more time on it. You know, with all due respect to Thierry Henry, he's not going to go chasing around full-backs. He's waiting for the ball to come to him. So you felt that you, 
you had more options on, on the pitch. And because you're playing with better players as well, that helped with, with my game. It was when I went down the league, you started to think, well, this is a different game. And it is, you know, the, the, the level is so big in the Premier League and it's, it's getting bigger now. You watch, you watch some of the, the teams play now. I watched Liverpool, watched Man City last night. The level's just going through the roof. You know, it's, it's probably the, it was probably a really tough league when I played. Goodness me, it's even harder now. You've mentioned Steve McLaren a, a few times and, and I really want to get your, your perspective on Steve as a coach because everyone that I, I've spoken to describes him as one of the very best coaches they've ever worked with and I just really, the, the basic question I've got for you is what made him such a great coach? I think his attention to detail. I think he was, and, and Brian was great for my career, he gave me my first chance, but Brian was a little bit I hate the word old school because that sounds like it's not relevant to now and I don't mean that but Brian sort of expected players to kind of know what to do on the pitch and I think that's the type of players that he brought to the club where you know I go back to the very experienced so you came into it and um, it was almost like well they know what they're doing and we did to a certain degree and we did well you know you, you think of the team that Brian had at the Middlesbrough we, we did do very very well when Steve came in, he wanted to change that dynamic and he, he wanted to create a team that was younger. And what he did with, with that was he coached us. And it was more of a coaching team rather than a, a manager expecting you to know what to do. And, it, and with, with his staff as well, I've got to say, you're only as good as the staff that you work for as a, as a, a head coach or manager. His staff were fantastic as well. And they almost had different roles within the squad. So there was um, a guy called Steve Harrison who was more on the defensive side. So he'd take the back four, which was myself, Gareth, Ugo and Frank Quadru or Ziga or Dean Gordon as left back. And we'd work on a Thursday afternoon, just the four of us. And that didn't happen before. You know, you started to get an understanding and uh, a buy-in from the players that this is what the coaches want from us. And it's important that we either do it or you get moved on and they'll bring somebody else in. So as a coach and a manager, you know, obviously um, he went on to bigger and better things, but he, he was very important to how the club evolved from a, an older squad to a younger one. One of the other things that always interests me about, about footballers, especially who've played in the Premier League, is, as you've done, is, is, is when you go out on loan to other clubs, just what's it like as a player when you go out and loan to a different environment? I mean, it's something that fans don't think about when you think of the location of some of your loans, Sheffield, West Ham, Rotherham. It's, it's sometimes as well, it's, it's not just a case of moving to a different club, it's, it's moving to a different location altogether. Especially for, for someone like myself who'd only ever been at Middlesbrough and grew up in the area. Um, loans are really important. If, if I put sort of my coach's hat on now, um, Loans can be really vital into a player's development and there's different ways that you can look at those loans. So there'll be loans where, if I think of a player that I, I worked with when I was at Sunderland, Jordan Pickford. So Jordan was always going to be a, a top-class goalkeeper. and But we knew that he'd outgrown the academy system, if you like. You know, he played in the 18s as a 16-year-old. He played in the, the reserve team as a 17-year-old, 18-year-old. 
So his next progression was to play senior football to see how, not how he could handle it, but how it could develop him. Um, so Jordan actually probably, his, if you look at his loan journey, he started in kind of Northern League senior, then he went up to the conference at the time, then he went to League Two, League One, and he probably racked up maybe 100 games at senior football before he made his debut for Sunderland. Whereas there's other players, so Jordan's is an exception because you knew he was going to be a goalkeeper for Sunderland at the time. Where there's other players where maybe the pathway's blocked and you're not quite sure where they're going to fit into the football pyramid and you send them out uh, to, to a club and you think, well, it'd be interesting to see how he, how he copes with the senior football. You know, he can be a brilliant football at youth, uh, footballer at youth level. But until you actually have that three o'clock on a Saturday where three points means everything and see how to deal with that. It's, it's completely different to a kettle of fish. Um, so my loans, my first one at Sheff Sheffield Wednesday was going to a big club. I'd already made my debut at Middlesbrough, but senior players were sort of in my way. And it was almost like, go on, how, how are you going to handle that then? You know, and that's, how, that's the kind of feeling that I got from it where West Ham had been injured at, at Middlesbrough for a while. West Ham came in for me, they were after a right back. Um, I was very close to signing permanent, but I got injured in my second game at Tottenham in the Cup. And then that loan sort of fizzled out a little bit. My Rotherham loan was I needed to play games. I'd been injured at West Ham, came back to Middlesbrough, couldn't make it into the first team. Um, and Rotherham won the championship at the time. And it was a case of, you, you need to play. You need to, the Rotherham loan was almost a case of, you need to get your career back on track. So there's different ways of looking at loans, um, especially for young, for young players. And it's important that the coaches recognise why the player's going out on loan and don't forget that. So even though I had three loans, each one was for a different reason. And thankfully, I went to Rotherham played all the games, got back to enjoying football again, was fit and signed permanent. Another another thing that, that always um, is something that I, I marvel at as a fan is the fact that you've played international football as well, which, again, as well as playing for your sort of hometown club, playing international football is, is every young kid's dream. You, your story's quite interesting yeah. in the sense that you were capped by England under-21 level, but you get five caps for, for Scotland. Just, just sum up what that experience was like in the transition? <laughs> yeah, it was interesting. Um, so, again, going back to maybe, maybe 18, 19, um, I'd made my debut at Middlesbrough at 17 years old for Brian and sort of got a little bit of press around that. You know, it's not very often a 17-year-old is playing in the first team. And I got called up to the under-21s with England a couple of times, um, but never actually played. In the, in the competitive games. Um, so it was always sort of unused sub and, and what have you. And then because I'd got injured and fell out of um, Middlesbrough's first team, if you like, it wasn't until Steve came back in, so maybe 22, 23, that I started playing regular in the Premier League. You know, that was, that was sort of in the, in the team every week. And that's when the Scotland interest came. So long story short, when you sign... Um, your schoolboy forms and professional forms as a kid you have to um, 
put down on a piece of paper who you're eligible to play for. And because my grandma was Scottish from Campbelltown, um, you just put it down and you don't really think anything of it. You know, at that time, you're not thinking I'm going to play international football. You're just thinking I need to try and make a career. Um, and then I just happened to mention it one day um, to, to a guy called Kenny Miller, who's a, a Scottish journalist. He works at Hibs, funny enough now. And he's from Campbelltown as well. So there was a link there, naturally. But it just started to, to sort of snowball, if you like. Um, and, you know, it was, it was a great experience. Um, it probably wasn't the greatest time in Scottish football for the national team, to be honest. And, you know, it's that, that's fine. But, you know, I wouldn't swap it for anything. You know, what a fantastic thing to do. And um, would I do it again? 100%, yeah. Another manager that had an incredible impact in your career, Ronnie Moore, just somewhat what he was like, because again, from the outside looking in with that Liverpudlian way of his, he just seemed like a tough taskmaster. Yeah, Ronnie, okay, so, so I mentioned that old school sometimes gets a negative press. Ronnie was old school. He, he, he'd he call you out for anything. Um, but, but again, he was one of those people who had an amazing skill of getting um, a good group of players together. And I mean, a group in terms of a good group of characters, he, 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 that, that was his skill. You know, on the training pitch, I think Ronnie would be the first to admit, you know, that's not where he's most comfortable. Um, but signing players that he knew he could mould into a, 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 a group. So if you think of that Rotherham team that I signed for, Rotherham at that time should never have been championship. But year in, year out we were because it was um, we sort of based our game on honesty, effort, hundred percent. Teams used to hate playing us, um, but we also had, we, we did have talented players. Don't get me wrong; you, you, that only gets you so far. So you got to have ability as well. Um, but no, Ronnie was Ronnie was good for me, and you know I'm still in touch with him. He's Exactly what the, exactly what I think you probably imagine he is, um, but no, a real good guy, good football person, and like I say, he's been a success at nearly every club he's been at. So you know, credit to him. As well as playing in the Premier League, you've also played in the Championship, League One, and League Two, as well as the the, the conference as well. In terms of those divisions, what changes as you go through the divisions? Obviously. A lot of people say the Premier League, the players are clinical if you make any form of mistake. When you're going through the divisions, is it the physicality that increases? Is it the direct nature of the play? What changes? Yeah, I, I, I think the direct nature is definitely one as you as you go down. And I think that just sort of is a natural uh, sort of step each level that you go down. I would say that the, the lack of time you have on the ball, especially as a defender, I think... In, in the Premier League and probably so to a certain extent the, the Championship, which I watch a lot. Um, Centre-forwards or forwards are expected to, they're expected to get into shape defensively, but not necessarily really sprint around and close the opposition defenders down. I think in League One, League Two, that is part of their job. So, the, so in turn, the game becomes a little bit more scrappy with more changeovers of possession. Um, so certainly that's that's a big factor in, in the differences. You know, you watch 
I, I, I remember, and I'm, I'm sure we'll go on to the coaching side of, of what I've done as well. I remember sort of being around the, the, the managers in the Premier League that I worked for. And a lot of the time, it was um, almost almost a scary thought that you have to go attack them. You know, if you go into Man City or Liverpool, you know, you're, you know that you're going to be on the back foot. So you get your shape and you're nice and compact behind the ball. Whereas in League One, League Two, you feel that every team can get after the opposition. So it becomes more frantic. And I think that's the difference. You know, I don't watch many League Two games or conference games or League One and one team sitting back for 75% of the game. You know, you never get that, do you? You never get uh, 75% possession from one team and the other team having hardly any. In the championship, yeah, you do. You know, you, last year certainly I watched Middlesbrough a lot on my doorstep and if they're playing a Fulham or somebody like that, the stats suggest that Middlesbrough sitting back in the Premier League, certainly. You know, um, you look at West Ham, the Arsenal over there, and it's brilliant what they do, you know, it's, it's how they nearly got a result, but the stats suggest that the possession's really, really small. So that's the dip, that's the main difference, I think. I think to open up in the Premier League as a team that's not one of the best teams is a real dangerous thing to do. In terms of yourself, we've talked about your playing career, playing in the Premier League, playing international football, having loans, um, playing at the at different um, elements of the, of the football in Pyramid. When did you decide that you wanted to go into coaching? Because your coaching career is is it's almost ten years ten years in now, which is a long time, and and that just shows you how passionate you were. The fact you took that up towards the end of your playing career. Yeah, so always wanted to stay in football, and it was at Tramia that um, there was a group of us, a group of players, um, that decided you know we're going to get the PFA in to do the B license. So I think there was six or seven of us that would stay every other Thursday afternoon and the PFA would come in and, and put us through our, our very first badge. Um, and then it was almost like, uh, it was almost a natural progression just to go on to the next badge and the next badge. So we, we'd finished the B licence at Tramia. I started my A licence then and had to leave Tramia. I didn't get offered a contract and went to Grimsby. And whilst I was at Grimsby, it was a real sort of, Peculiar thing. I played. I played for two years at Tramway in nearly every single game, every minute of every game. Um, so it was a real shock to sort of not not renew my contract, and then went to Grimsby and just had injury after injury. It was so frustrating. Um, and I was on the A license at Grimsby in the final year. Um, it was a guy called Neil Woods who was the academy manager but got to take over the, the first team. Mike Newell had got sacked. So Woodsy went into the first team. Um, I couldn't play for him because I was injured, but I sort of started helping him out on the on the training pitch a little bit and doing bits and bobs for him. And then we got relegated that, that year. So we got relegated out of League Two to go to what was then the conference. And Woodsy came to me and said, listen, you've been injured. I had two operations on my on my uh, hernias and groins and was just feeling pretty crappy about myself to be honest you know you're not doing what you, you really love to do and Woodsy said listen I'm not going to offer you a playing contract but would you consider taking over the academy because I've got the first team job so I thought about it and um, thought about it would 
you know, split up with my wife and we just had a, a second child and it just seemed like the natural thing to do at 29, 30 years old to think, well, you could scrape around and go for another three or four years, get a year's contract at one part of the, uh, the country after, after one year going somewhere else and, you know, sort of doing that sort of lower league footballer thing. And I thought, no, I'm going to give the coaching a go. And that's how it sort of developed. Did my year license, was academy manager, probably the best decision I've ever made, to be honest. So it was difficult. It was really tough. We'd fallen out the Football League as a, as a club. Um, so that meant that the funding for the youth department got cut. But we, we did well. You know, we, we had a, a good youth team. We had teams from right from under nines to under 16s and then obviously the, the youth team that were full time and we made it work and um, as a grounding for a coach to start at the bottom was, was brilliant for me um, and then obviously you go on to your pro license and you get that ticked off but um, no so I, I probably I think for every footballer who's playing uh, the best bit of advice I can give you is do the coaching badges whilst you're playing. But the same talk and uh, the holy grail of getting to 35 as a player and dripping into the coaching side never worked for me. So I did it five years earlier and probably have had the benefits of that with what, what's happened since. And in terms of, you mentioned starting at the bottom, working your way up, earning the, the pro licence, earning, earning those badges on merit. When you go to a massive club like Sunderland, you initially start working with young players. You then progress up to the reserve team and then the first team. What's the difference between working with under-18s and reserves compared to senior pros? Um, where do you start? I think, I think you've got to remember when you're a youth team coach, manager, however you want to title it, you're working to get a player a career. That's it. You know, I used to, when I was academy manager at Grimsby, one of the first things I was really conscious was of on a Sunday when you see that the, the 9s and 16s are playing and you've got coaches at each age group and the first question was never, what was the score? It was, how did you play? Who was the best player on the pitch? Was it one of ours? Was it one of theirs? Who's done well this week? And coaches ever, only ever really want to tell you, we won 2-0. Really, at youth team level, that's not important. You know, of course it means that you may be having a bit of success because you've got better players. I, I get that. But I'd much rather a, a, a youth team coach under my, sort of, in, in the bracket terms be there, would have said, we got beat 2-0, but we were brilliant. We had the best player on the pitch. Because that's the job. As a youth team coach, your job is to get a, a player into the first team. You don't get them into the first team, as much satisfaction as me, for me, was getting them a career. So at Sunderland, we got players into the first team quite regular. You know, we, we did well. But some of the players are now playing football league and never played for Sunderland's first team. And that's as good. You know, I look at the team sheets on a Saturday afternoon. I thought, great, he's playing again. He's playing at League Two. He's making a career for himself. At senior level, it's about winning. You've got to... You've got, to make, you've got to get a team to win on a Saturday afternoon. And that's almost the be-all or end-all. Because if, if you don't win as a manager or a coach, you're not going to be in the job for very long. 
so that that emphasis changes um so yeah there's there's big differences um i think in it you know if you if you're sort of rounding it up at youth team level it's nice to win but that's not the priority at first team level it probably is the priority yeah and in terms of first team level you've worked with with an array of managers um sam allardyce chris coleman um, others in there as well. You've also been at the club when the likes of Paolo Di Cario uh, and others were there. What What are those characters like to work with in the training field on a daily basis? And what have you learned from from those coaches you've worked with? Um, yeah. So, the, I mean, if you if you look at who I've, if you just take Sunderland for example. So when I was a youth team coach or doing the twenty ones at the time, not changed twenty threes, but twenty ones. My first manager was Martin O'Neill. And then, like I say, it was Paolo. And then after Paolo was, I think, was it Gus Poyer, Dick Advocat. So that was my youth, the managers when I was a youth team coach. And then at first team level was Sam, uh, David Moyes, Sam and Grayson and Chris Coleman. And the one thing that's consistent is they're all different. Every single one of them is different. They've got different ways of going about things. They've got different tactics they've got different styles of how to deliver what the message um and, and to be honest that was the same as a player if i think of every manager that i played for you mentioned ronnie moore well ronnie moore is completely different to steve mclaren but it's it's about how it's about people and it's about how they get their message across um so working as a youth team coach Yes, you see them on the training pitch, but you don't have that direct access to them. You know, they're doing their bits and you try and provide the players that might fit into their system and, and, and ways of playing. When I was working as first team coach, my first one was Sam. And Sam had a... It, 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 Sam was very detailed in the way that he wanted the, the game to be played, but made it very simple. I know that sounds like a contradiction. Um, but the players would know exactly what was expected of them on the pitch. It was it was very clear. This is how we're going to play. This is how we set up. And Sam's uh, remit when he came in was to keep us up. And that's the way that he found best to do that. David tried to then take us on a step and um, had a completely different way of being on the training pitch. David was very hands-on. Sam was very standoffish and would just watch and let the staff deliver his message where David um, wanted to do that himself and there's no right or wrong way you know it's it's their preference it's, it's how each manager wants to to go about their business and as a as a staff your job is then to adapt to what they want and support that. Um, so yeah I, I would say you know, all managers are judged on results ultimately, but they all go about it in very, very different ways. If I think of my first two as a man, as a as a player, Brian was really successful, and Steve was really successful. Both completely different ways of going about it. One of the players I, I know as a coach, and you don't like singling out players. Nobody does, but. I want to ask you about Jermaine Defoe because he yes. was a player who he's still playing now. And when you think of the longevity he's had in his career, he must be a great example on the training pitch. I'm just assuming that because when you see him on the pitch, especially in that time at Sunderland, 
he was a real talisman and you think of what he was doing off the park with young Brad Lowry and his family he just seemed yeah. like the ultimate role model yeah firstly a great guy you know you know it's a, in general and I know this is a very uh, sort of generalization but in the top players in my experience are, are good people so I think back to those that I played for, uh, with Paul Ince, very driven, but was ju was just a good guy. You know, um, Gareth Southgate, you see him now, England manager, but that's how he was as a player. So Jermaine was exactly the same, very driven, very professional. Um, Monday to Friday trained very well, would sometimes look after himself in terms of not exert himself too much, but when you asked him to do something, was right on it, right on point. Um, and you're dead right. Talisman, he's probably the most natural finisher I've ever worked with and played with. Um, he used to do finishing drills, and he always had this uh, knack. So, again, another story that we, we used to do. We used to I used to take the forwards from the under-18s, under-23s, and the seniors were working together. I thought that was a real good tool. So, maybe, you know, small numbers. The two centre-forwards from the under-18s, 21s, two forwards, and the senior boys. So, maybe working with six or seven players at a time and just focus purely on individual drills for shooting. And I ended up tapping into Jermaine because, um, you know, you'd put this drill on and you'd always make it relevant to the, to the match. You know, we're going to work on this finish because... Um, on Saturday we're playing Bournemouth and we think that you know the right full back pushes on too much so we're going to finish down the left hand side channel so you say this to Jermaine and you were forwards in the senior team and you give them they always want to know why why are we doing this well this is why and then you almost just hand the session over to them because what am I going to tell Jermaine but he doesn't know already and it became almost like Jermaine just from doing what he does was coaching the younger players and you could see him thrive on that as well. So we have um, a player called Josh Madger, who's now playing in France. Fantastic player. Jermaine always had this knack of, no matter what situation he was going to score a goal in, seemed to have more time than anybody else. He still does. I, you know, I watch the games up in, in Scotland still. And Jermaine goes through, and it's almost like he's got half a second longer than anybody else but would go through the same situation. And that's just, it's experience, it's talent, I don't know what it is, it's just that sort of bit that makes them a bit more special than other centre-forwards. So you, you tap into that as a coach, you know, it's no point me telling Jermaine, we finish like this, he knows, you know, he's he's an international player, he's played at some of the top teams in, the, in England. Um, so as a person around that, he thrived on that as well. You know, you could tell that he liked that extra responsibility of working with the younger players and try to develop them as well. And that's, you know, that's probably more powerful as a coach to just put that session on and you almost just supervise it rather than, whereas I think sometimes young coaches, and I was guilty of this as well coming through, you want to impact a session all the time. Where actually the best thing sometimes to do is just take a step back. It's happening. You know, just let it go. And Jermaine was one of those. And we had other players like that. You know, you, I'd do the same with defenders and John O'Shea and Wes Brown. And I'd say, well, what do you think? And the, there's no point me telling John O'Shea and Wes Brown where they should stand because they know. But using their experience to deliver it to the younger players was really powerful. 
you also talked about your beginnings in coaching at, at Grimsby. See, when you get to the Premier League in a club like Sunderland and you've got world-class facilities, just how good is that from a coach's point of view? And a second part to that equation as well, is it how important is it that you emphasise that to the young guys, especially like Samaja and, and others coming through, that you're so lucky to have these great facilities and there's guys your age that are, that are playing in the Football League that would dream of this? Yeah, 100%. So... Um, it does help, you know, without a doubt, having the facilities, having and nearly every Cat 1 club in England have Cat 2. You know, obviously we have Cat Greece with the Triple P. Now, they have to have that, and it's a good thing. But you're dead right. I think you're alluding to the fact that it can be a negative for the players coming through the system. But this is what they get used to. So, again, we talk about that loan system that we talk, spoke about. Sometimes a loan can be used to give a player what it's like to be a footballer in the real real world, if you like. And it's not all nice. It's not that the fact that you get your kit every morning on your bench, you have to take it home sometimes. Lunch isn't five different options. It's this or you're not eating. And, it, it you know, it, it's, it comes with its own dangers. The one thing I would say um, at Sunderland, I walked into academy that was, it had the facilities, it had the best of everything, but it never once felt that the kids were not privileged to be there. What, you know, very rarely, I, I would still say that a, a player now, if you'd have put me in that situation and gave me 10 grand a week, I would still want to be a footballer and I'd do everything that I possibly could. And that's the message that you give them. You've got this, don't abuse it, use it. And that that's sort of... That's kind of the message that is through the academy, or it was when I was there. I think things have possibly changed now, and that's no fault for the people that are there, but where they are in terms of as a club with ownership and what have you. Um, but no, we we proud, so we're really pr proud on the fact that our kids at the time would work as hard <laughs> as anybody else, and that's really important because if they don't get that. They don't have that drive in them. They won't make it to, to where they need to go. Um, but no, I do take your point. It can come with dangers, giving them too much too young, definitely. They can lose that hunger. You, you talked about the Premier League and, and going to like a City and Liverpool. And, and for Sunderland, obviously, that's a challenge. But even for some of the established big clubs, you think of, of Arsenal in, in times gone by, really struggled going to like a Liverpool and City as well. It's a big challenge. In terms of coaching at the Premier League level and the Championship level, is is the biggest challenge with a club like Sunderland that the fact that obviously the crowd's an incredible positive of any football club, but because there are so many fans and they clearly expect a lot of their club, at times is that a real challenge when things aren't going so well? The fact that you've got that weight of expectancy every Saturday. Yeah, I get where you're going with that. I would, I would say you'd rather have that than not you know if you play for a club of that size get used to it because if you're not up to it then you shouldn't be there um and i would never say that the the, the expectation should be a negative you should embrace it um now it's different i suppose if you're at a man united or a man city where you should be challenging every week to win three points and be champions or progressing Europe and the Champions League, that, that becomes a different pressure. But 
I would, I mean, I remember doing coaching courses and when I was younger and we had um, Sir Dave Brailsford, you know, the cycling. Yeah. Uh, and they talked about pressure and he, his phrase, and I'm stealing it, but his phrase was uh, pressure is a privilege. You know, you're, you're in this situation because you're good enough. And if you're not good enough, you'll get found out and we bring somebody else in, in the cycling world. And I, I still stand by that. You know, if, if you think that you can handle it and you're good enough to do it, then really the expectation of the supporters should spur you on and not be a negative. But we have, you know, on the flip side, I would say that there have been players that would not freeze, but certainly their performance would be affected by what's expected of them. And, you know, if you didn't start the game well in 10, 15 minutes, and you weren't one up and there was grumblings in the crowd, you can see the big characters would say, come on, keep giving me the ball, we're going to do this. And some players would sort of shy away from it. Yeah, definitely, you do see that. And in terms of Sunderland as a club, there, there was ups, there was downs. How do you reflect overall in your time at Sunderland? Because what I would say just before you answer, Robbie, is you've left the club obviously and the club have had different managers and and, and they're, they're not beyond where they were when you were there with Sam Allardyce etc so people listening to this might have their own opinions on certain times and spells at Sunderland but at the end of the day the proof's in the pudding that there was good times when you were there and, and, and tougher times as well how do you reflect on it overall? I, I love my time there you know it was tough towards the end um, you know the position that I was in um, you support the manager at the time. That's that's the job, and you know sort of things didn't go well towards the end. I, I still think that Chris, if he'd have stayed, would have built the club up well. But obviously, there was a change of ownership, and I, you know you look at you look at that ownership, and at the time, Ellis, although he spent a lot of money in, in the initial period, he, he wanted to sell the club and wasn't putting the money back in and it was just it was just a really difficult time you had the Netflix documentary obviously but was out so you know it's not a secret with what what I'm saying but um no it was a, I, I think no matter what I think as a as an experience you got to learn from the good and bad times and you do and you, you sort of take that with you and you think well if that happened again I'd maybe react this way or you know you see you you see it all the time, don't you? Clubs have, have difficult times and you think, yeah, I can see what they're going through now. So, no, it was it was fantastic experience. I wouldn't change it, but, yeah, it was tough. There was some real dark moments, yeah. Uh, you might not want to, want to talk about this, but I just I want to get your perspective on the fact you mentioned the documentaries. I mean, we've seen Man City's, we've seen Tottenham's, Borussia Dortmund and others have got theirs. Sunderland, of course, have, have had a couple of series of their own version. When the cameras are there... As a coach, did you find it in any way intrusive or do you forget they're there? Um, well, to be honest, I've not seen a documentary. Um, I've not seen Sunderland Till I Die and it's not something that, you know, potentially that I, I would maybe watch in the future, but at the moment it's it was hard enough living through it. So I don't like to watch myself back anywhere, to be honest. Um, the one thing with, with that was the guys were who were filming and it was you got to remember there was only maybe five six in the building at any one time were really respectful you know they were very much everything that 
from our point of view as coaches, would, they would come first and say, are we okay to film this? Um, and if we said, no, honestly, this is not for you. We want to keep this in-house. They were fine with that. So um, I've not seen a documentary, but from my point of view, um, I was caretaker manager a couple of times, probably during it, in between different managers. There were nothing but, but really respectful and sort of understood what was what was game and what wasn't. Um, yes, there was occasions that you'd walk into a room and forget a camera was there, but both times you either got the nod from somebody to say, there's a camera in that corner, just be careful, or quite often the lads would sort of egg you on to say, to say stuff, which was quite funny. You know, quite, often, quite often we used to get the little microphone down your top, so if it was two or three of us and say the physio came, we always sort of try and stitch him up, you know. What about so and so? Is he fit today? Oh, come on, he's got to be fit by now. And he'd go, I know, I can't believe it. And suddenly you'd just drop the microphone out of your collar and he goes, Oh, so and so. So there was a bit of that going on. But um, overall, my experience of him was it's fine. I've seen a little bit of the Tottenham documentary. Um, and no matter what, I've, I've maybe seen two or three episodes now they know that the camera's there. So I don't think they're acting as natural as what they would be without it. You know, I've seen the Danny Rose, Jose Mourinho sort of conversation. There's, there's no way that they're letting that go out if it was organic and it was a proper sort of, be, you know, behind closed doors situation. I, I just don't see that. So no matter what came out, I'm sure it's controlled. Yeah, and I think that's the, the main thing that that uh, about those documentaries is, is that whole idea, as you've rightly said, is what should stay in house and, and, and what's there for, for the fans and the public to see. And I think that balance needs to be struck. The, the, I have to ask you, as you know, about Hibernian. They're a massive club in Scotland. Um, and when you came up to, to Scotland with Paul Hagenbottom, when you came in initially, it was, it was a very successful spell, playing some really good football and... And, and really keeping the fans and making them very, very happy. I remember the, the initial, as I say, spell when you came in and, and Hibs fans were absolutely delighted. Yeah. Yeah, we, we enjoyed our time there. Um, you know, we, we came in and, the, like, exactly what you said, there was a big impact and a, a turn in fortunes. Um, you know, we, we wanted to... Um, Change dynamics of the squad's probably too strong, but we wanted a, a, a bit younger sort of squad and, and, and one that we can maybe mould into the team we wanted it to be. Um, and the start of the season, you know, with, with the turnover of players, it was always going to be a little bit of a work in progress. Um, we didn't get the results that we should have got, clearly. There was, there was games we drew we should have won. There was games that... Um, we lost, we should have drawn. And I don't want to say these things happen because it, it really hurt at the time. But yeah, we, we were hoping for a little bit more time to turn things around. But, you know, results dictate sometimes. What was it like working with Paul Heckenbottom? Because I always feel in Scotland, and, and you probably maybe think this, you might not want to say it, but I always think in Scotland, for instance, when you come in and, and Paul and yourself have the impact, people love to talk you up then when you have a, a sticky spell at the start of the next season, it's as if the previous part didn't happen. And I felt with Paul Heckenbottom at Hibs that at times that was the case, that 
he could do no wrong in the in the first spell before the summer. Then after the summer, somehow that was disregarded. And for instance, another example of that would be Christian Doidge. I mean, he comes in, he doesn't score when Paul's there, but you see the player he's become after you've left and you think that's where the time probably aspect comes in, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. Um, listen, you go back to that question that you spoke about the difference between being a youth coach and being senior management. It's about results. It's about winning. Um, and we were close to that. You know, you look at games and there's, there's clearly games in my mind that for, for real small margins might have gone the other way. So uh, you look at Aberdeen away where Christian's gone through three times in a 1v1. One time you should square it. Aberdeen had out with a 10 men. You go 2-0 up in that game, you win it without even sort of getting a sweat on in, in your last 10 minutes. But you don't, it becomes that anxious thing because you've not won for a couple of weeks. So listen, you, you go into it knowing exactly what it is. You know, I've never come on on anything and, and speaking to you and being honest. You'd never say um, that it surprises you what happens in the end. But you know, would would we deserve a little bit more time? I, I think so. But that's me speaking speaking honestly with that. Um, you look at Christian now; he can't stop scoring. Can he? That's right true. in one way. He's, he's a good player and he can score goals. He just found his scoring boots after we left, unfortunately. And in terms of Scottish football, what was your opinion of it when, when you came up here with Paul? Because a lot of people um, down south that don't watch it sometimes, I think, assume that it's it's not of a high standard. But as I'm sure hopefully you'll attest to, there's, there's some really good teams in the league in competitive games. No, I, I think that's exactly right. We, we really enjoyed the football. Um, I think one of the false opinions, maybe, if you like, and again, I, I don't dwell on things that have happened in the past, but one of the criticisms that, that Paul got was he didn't respect the league. and did they, that, That's rubbish, absolutely rubbish. We, we did our homework on it. Um, we watched dozens of Hibs games before we came up and watched it live and paid in to, to go into the stands and just watch it as, as, as supporters. So that theory of, you know, an English guy coming up from Barnsley and Leeds and not respecting the league just isn't right. Um, the one thing we didn't do was get the results. And, you know, that's different to not respecting the league. We really did. Um, in terms of the football, really honest you know, there was never, ever an easy game, no matter who you were playing. The one thing I would say with um, the SPL is it's it's almost two or three leagues in one. Yeah. You've got, you've got it's such a disbalance between the top teams and, and the bottom teams, but that makes it part of the interest as well. You know, that's that makes it kind of unique, I guess. I know you get that in sort of other leagues and I watch a lot of Spanish football and it's similar. you've got two or three teams that could only ever be at the top and every so often one breaks into that but in general it's always going to be the same teams in similar positions and to break into that is difficult it's not impossible and you know that was always the end. so no I think that would be the one thing I'd, you would dispel is that we didn't respect it or didn't think it was good we did we knew exactly what we were going into because we did no research. 
one player in particular I want to ask you about, quite topical at the moment as well. <laughs> and I'm not speaking about a turn for saying this. In Scotland, we are crying out for a centre-back. We really are. Um, when you look at our national team, we're crying out for a centre-half. We're probably crying out for a centre-forward as well, if truth be told. But in Ryan Portis, you worked with, in my opinion, one of the best young centre-halves that we've produced in recent years. Do you think he can go on to play at a high level and, and play for Scotland regularly in the future? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you've got to remember... Uh, Ryan wasn't available to us very often. We, you know, he, he was injured for a long time with his knee. Um, you know, same as same as Martin Boyle at Hibs. You know, we, we never we never really had him fit, um, which was unfortunate. But no, Ryan, I did a lot of work with Ryan in terms of video stuff when he when he was injured, just to to see where he, he thought his game was at as much as anything. So Ryan is. He's got all the attributes. That's the first thing I'd say. He's still very young in his development in terms of how to play the position. And I mean that with, he can be quite rash. I'm pretty sure you agree with that. You know, there's some tackles that Ryan goes yeah, into, but he doesn't. And at international level, if he did that, he would be yellow carded, potentially red carded. So he just needs to be a little bit cuter with his game at that level. But has he got the potential? 100%, definitely. Um, he's quick, he's aggressive, which is good. He's, he still needs to curb that. He's good on the ball, technically, both feet. We worked a lot with that as his, part of his rehab when he was coming through. Um, so no, I, I could see Ryan playing international football, no problem. But he would have to um, channel that, that's probably the best way to put it channel that aggression and just sort of curb it a little bit at times And in terms of um, that, that period overall you, you mentioned the fact that Martin Boyle's injured, Ryan Portis is injured um, which uh, any club when you're missing two, two key players can be difficult we talked about Christian Dodge and the fact that you and Paul sign him, he doesn't score a lot of goals when you're there but subsequently goes on to prove what a player he is Really, when, when it comes to management and coaching at first-team level, I mean, you, you've talked about it being about results. As, as much as management and coaching comes down to skill, skill, does luck come into it as well when you think about situations like that where if those players were available, it could have been completely different? Uh, maybe, maybe. But they weren't available to us when we, you know, had that good start. So, you know, if you, you got to... I think you've got to sort of be honest and say it can't all be luck. Do you need a little bit of luck? Definitely, you know, of course it helps. But at the same time, um, not every result we had was because of bad luck as well. Um, so, yeah, do you need it? It helps, of course it does. And would we, if we'd have those players available all the time and you had a full squad to, to, to pick from and... Uh, the, the linesman recognised that there was an offside for St Johnston in the 93rd minute when he equalised and it's quite a blatant offside. You draw the game instead of winning it. Yeah, 100%. Would it help? Definitely. But, you know, I think anybody, I'm sure Hibs fans would, would not want me to sit here and say we're out of a job because of bad luck. Um, you know, you make your own sometimes as well. And in terms of the future, you're clearly a coach who's who's held in, in high regard. What, what's your plan for the future? Do you want to be a manager in your own right, or is the role of an assistant or first-team coach what you prefer? 
Um, you know what? I've, so if I go back to you know those very early days at Grimsby doing the youth team and buying balls off eBay for the youth team and each ball was a different championship club because that's what happened at the time. I always ever only ever wanted to sort of be the best I can be and do the best I can. And I think in coaching, that's all you can do. So you can have aspirations to be a head coach or a manager here or here. Um, I've only just sort of turned 40 and I work now as a first team coach for um, probably two international managers. One extremely experienced Premier League manager who worked for 15 years at Everton or wherever it was, Man United. Um, so where I am right now is I've done all that and the next bit I'll take for what it is. You know, that's that's how it works. I think as a player, it's easier to have those ambitions because if you have a bad session, you know that the next session I'm going to work even harder, I'm going to get on the ball or bad, a bad game on a Saturday. I'm going to be even better this Saturday. As a coach, it's different. You're waiting for opportunities to come up. So if the next opportunity to come up is what I feel is right for me, then I'll take it. If it's not, then I won't. I have to say, it's been a pleasure speaking to you, Robbie, and, and I hope to see you back in the game soon because throughout this interview, it's clear that you're passionate about the game. And I think you mentioned the fact that you're, you're, you're 40, you know, you're turning 40, I think. You're at an age where really you're going to be coming into your, your peak, arguably in the next sort of 10 years. So hopefully you get back in as, as soon as possible. No, I hope so. Like you say, it's been a it's, it, it's been a, a tough time to be out of work with COVID and football stopping. And, um, you know, everybody's going through a real difficult time and you can't really see it change around particularly quickly. Um, but no, it's been, it's been great to chat and hopefully it's been useful to, to hear and you found some of it interesting um, but no it's, it's, it's always great to talk football isn't it no matter no matter what sort of aspect it is so we'll dive down to the ocean and we'll make our home in a deep sea cave and our shells will all be open they'll be filled with song they'll be filled with song we'll dive down to the ocean and we'll make her home in a deep sea cave and her shells